Hi everyone, this is Dr. Natasha Burnett, your host of Bluff City Crime. Today I'm sitting down with Memphis's own Justice Bay, Joya Thornton, to discuss her criminal justice reform efforts in our fair city and the death penalty case she's working on. Let's listen in. Okay, so thank you. Thank you for taking time out, ma'am. I know you are super busy getting ready mm -hmm. to leave us. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are upset about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a shock, but you know, it's it's time to move to another market. Yes, <laughs> and we're so very happy for you for that. I'm happy for you to be moving forward and doing something, um, you know, doing what you love. Right, right. So right. I guess absolutely. the first thing, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying absolutely, you know, sometimes you have to step out on faith, on the yeah. things that you feel is purposeful work. Right. And so that's absolutely what I feel this new venture in Atlanta is calling me to. Mm -hmm. Oh, Atlanta. <laughs> okay, well, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. I want to, everybody knows Justice Bay. Huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, but Justice for the people Bay. that don't know i want you to just give us a little bit of background on who is who is joya who is joya right so joya is a child of memphis i graduated from the central high school <laughs> and left central yeah i left central and i went to new orleans which is where uh, a lot of my ancestral roots are from mm -hmm. and went to dillard university and I was actually in school when Hurricane Katrina hit. Oh, wow. So I'm kind of like a Hurricane Katrina baby. And my number two school, Natasha, was um, Spelman. So, okay. right. So I've always kind of like had this Atlanta calling. Mm -hmm. And the buses were taking so long to get to, to um, Louisiana that I just decided, me and my sister decided to go to LSU. Okay. And so LSU is in Baton Rouge. I graduated from LSU, majoring, double majoring in English and French. Uh, was tired of the South and moved to New York and got Where my you writing. Where the French at, ma'am? Right, right. We, we, we. I love so, um, high school. Yeah, on pure, on pure, on pure. <laughs> but um, so yeah, and I left there and I went to New York and that's where I worked in entertainment, made some really great connections, had a ball. I knew I didn't want to graduate from college and, and get married at 23 and have 2.5 oh, kids and a dog. <laughs> no, 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 no shade to people who decided that I knew that. Yeah, I just knew that that wasn't my path. And so I uh, was up there for three years, worked for Vibe, The Source, MTV, all kinds oh, wow. of like cool publications. Um, but I felt like I needed to be doing something more. Um, I started studying for law school, went to Loyola Law School, came back to Memphis and uh, finished with my master's in public policy and legal studies at the University of Memphis. I wanted to tackle some policy area. I come from a family of educators. Education was the first thing I tackled in working with families in Frazier. Um, a lot of the root causes of people experiencing the criminal legal system were very negative. 
And so I knew that that's the next thing I wanted to tackle. And um, I started at Just City, which is the only criminal justice reform organization here in the city of Memphis in 2018. Okay. <laughs> in 2018. And then I um, really just through my work at Just City got noticed nationally through the National uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund and other uh, programs, the Eighth Amendment Project, and got this opportunity to go to Atlanta and really bring more um, allies and particularly African-American allies into the work of capital punishment. So anti-capital punishment litigation. So that is where I am now. That is Justice Bay, caring about everything, juvenile justice, right. um, anything that deals with uh, folks who have been traditionally uh, marginalized. Okay, that's awesome. That's a great bio. <laughs> My goodness. I, had to, I had to take you through the Justice Bay journey. <laughs> <laughs> the training camp. Okay, so um, you, I feel like you have your, hands in just a little bit of everything. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about is um, the case that the work that you're doing on the uh, Purvis pain, is it right. Purvis pain, pain mm -hmm. uh, death penalty case. Um, of course, I, along with everybody else, <clears throat> watching, uh, believe this was last week when right. the judge um, essentially dismissed his petition. Um, the 19th, forward, yeah. Yeah, to go forward with, um, I guess, um, being exonerated or at least getting a new trial based on the evidence. Um, right. What I heard from his attorneys was that there was more blood found, well, the blood that was tested was not his. Mm -hmm. And the judge was like, that's not sufficient. We're going to throw this case out. And I'm like, um, that sounds like a thing to me. What, what right, are you right. Um, What's the, what, how, how do y'all plan to move forward from that? Right. So it, it sounded like a thing to us too. And with this case, this case has been going on for 33 years um, since I was a toddler right. and I'm now involved in this case. Um, we thought that it was a thing too. And just really shouts out to Kelly Henry and the federal public defenders in Nashville, her investigation team, they have done a phenomenal job um, as his, you know, what she often says, his last counsel, mm -hmm. his last uh, representation towards exoneration or uh, wherever the case may, may land. Yeah. Um, there was unidentifiable male DNA found on the murder weapon. That's what I saw. Right. So it wasn't yeah, like, like I'm not sure what the judge just read or what she's talking about because right. I mean I feel like I'm I'm just right. <laughs> yeah, I'm and the thing the explain. thing is, you know, shouts out to Judge uh, Paula Skane, who was the judge who ordered yeah. for the DNA results to be tested because. Um, originally in 2006, there was a request for uh, the DNA to be tested. You know, it was not as fresh as it would have been in 1987, right. but a little bit more fresh from 2020. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so um, shout out to her for that. But her um, standing was it wasn't enough. And, I, and the prosecutors uh, brought it up and she agreed. It wasn't enough of that DNA evidence to run through CODIS. So mm -hmm. it wasn't enough of that to determine or rule out 
one man or the entire male population is what um, the standing was on, on, on those grounds. So for us uh, and the family, we feel, you know, for her legal team and legal advocates and organizers, we feel that that was a huge break um, in the case, especially when Mr. Payne has maintained his innocence for 33 years. And I know a lot of people will say, oh, a lot of people maintain Right, right. There's some doubt on the case. Mm-hmm. You know? it, it sheds a lot of doubt on the case. And we, we feel that that's enough to right. uh, reopen a couple of things. But uh, the judge did not agree. And of course, you know, the prosecutors uh, brought that up and, and the judge agreed with the prosecutors in this matter. But we're not done yet. We still have some things brewing legislatively in Tennessee in relation to intellectual disabilities. When you talk about Mr. Payne and if you talk to any of his family members and his friends, you know, he has lived with an intellectual disability ever since he was a young child. And really under our judicial definitions of um, intellectual disabilities and who we choose to execute, that does not match the definition of the national intellectual disabilities community. So what we're trying to do, and we've been working with the Black Caucus and Representative G.A. Hardaway and others to really make sure that um, we look at this and we pass this bill so that the definition matches, uh, the the legal and judicial definitions match what the entire community defines as an intellectual disability. So we're um, now, we're moving on the legislative floor. So we just came from from court, the judicial world, we're definitely moving to uh, the legislators. We need we need everybody to support. What is uh what's Miss what's Mr. Payne's demeanor right now? Like how is he how's he processing this? Right, um, Mr. Payne comes from a family of believers. Um, his dad is a bishop superintendent in the church of god in christ okay. his uh sister is a or, or ordained minister she's a minister in the church of god in christ this family has so much hope um and rolanda uh she often speaks and this is his sister she often speaks about her mother who went to her grave just knowing that her son purpose will come out one day or Bubba as they call him. He also lost a sister during his time of incarceration. And she also believed that he would one day come out uh, of prison. So this is a family that has been full of hope. It hasn't been easy, they're still human. But at the same time, they've just remained true in their faith and their spirituality. And that's something that the legal team and advocates have really, um, really operated in that same thread. I'm glad to hear that he has such a a strong uh, background, um, Mm -hmm. strong um, family and that support, um, because he definitely needs that. Um, The reprieve for his execution is um, expires in April. I think April 20th, 21st, something around. I believe it's somewhere around the 9th or the 10th is what I, what I believe. I think so. Um, What, what can be done during that time? I mean, right. So I know, I know. So I have to also shout out to the Innocence Project and, you know, Barry Sheck and Vanessa Potkins and Alicia Mill and all of those folks who have really, um, really catapulted Mr. Payne's case to a national stage. Um, the last that I saw, one of the major celebrities was uh, 
Leah Remini from King of Queens, she oh, yeah. retweeted, she posted something on her Instagram about Mr. Payne and it got over 1 million yeah. likes. So we still need folks to share this case. We need people to prick the hearts of folks that are close to the governor, particularly uh, conservatives. Because right now, Governor Lee, he holds the power of life and death in his hands. And he claims to be a man, a man of faith. And we're just praying and hoping that he will do the right thing and really analyze and look at all of the facts of uh, Mr. Payne's case. So just spread the word, keep the message going, and uh, support the legislators trying to get this bill passed. Is there any hope for... Um just like a, a sentence commutation uh is it commutation yes um rather than um you know right uh, just want to exonerate him completely right or or in lieu of, or do a you know commute his sentence to just life sentence right so the attorneys have several strategies some of them i cannot share right uh, now uh, on this good. platform but i will say that the attorneys uh, kelly henry and others are relentless. They are relentless in their pursuit to really gain justice for not just Mr. Payne, but the entire Payne family. And for those of you who have ever had someone incarcerated, you know it's just not the person that is incarcerated. It's the yeah. entire family yeah. that is incarcerated with that individual. So um, they're relentless. And like I said, you know, as developments arrive, you will be the first to know. Um, <laughs> breaking, I will call you up and say, hey, some developments in this case I really I want to share that. <laughs> with you but uh, right now, yeah, we, we have a lot of strategies uh, between now, now and April. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that um, he has such a great support system around him with you all and his family. Um, I really hope that things turn out in his favor right. um, in regard to this case. Um, I guess kind of related to, um, to that, um, do you think there's an issue of race in this? Wow, I'm so glad. You did your homework. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I wrote in, in fall of 2020 an article entitled The Color of Capital Punishment. Mm -hmm. And I really talked about uh, how lynching in Tennessee is and really in the South is directly related to capital punishment and yeah, the death penalty. Um, Sister Helen Prejean, she's a death penalty abolitionist and she has a quote that says, oftentimes capital punishment is placed on those without the capital, they get the punishment. Right. So, and you know, Martin Luther King, he has several quotes about the issue of the death penalty and capital punishment fall upon the, the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the oppressed. So when you think about our country's history with lynching and those who, who, who were lynched, who were um, black folks in the South, uh, oftentimes, sometimes for uh, looking a white person in the eye. Right. Um, there are so many different cases and the Death Penalty Information Center released also last year, um, a report on race and the death penalty. So mm -hmm. definitely, I do, to answer your question the short way, I definitely believe that because of Mr. Payne's race, he definitely got the short end of the 
hectic. His case was um, expedited in cases like this, I believe in, 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 you know, I hope someone in the chat or whatever quotes me if I'm wrong, but really his case was expedited and he was supposed to have two attorneys when dealing with capital punishment if those charges are brought against him and he just had one. And really throughout the life of his case, it's just been kind of brushed away and, and things have been missing. Even, you know, in regards to DNA, like 1987 to 2020, right. that DNA should have been preserved. And there are over 12 pieces of items that just went missing, oh, wow. including fingernail scrapings wow. um, that the victim, you know, fought off the offender that uh, disappeared. <laughs> last year in 2020 so when you think about things like that and, and and items not being and property not being preserved you can't help but to think about about race and how our people have been traditionally treated in brian stevenson a champion in capital uh, capital punishment um if you guys have seen just mercy phenomenal movie it talks yeah. about his case and really helping individuals uh in the south who have been faced with capital punishment get some type of justice like yeah. he's done a, a great job through his museums of connecting the two together so when it comes to capital punishment and race i think that there is a great burden and and almost reclamation that uh, the justice system needs to have as far as how they treat people of color Right. I think that um, a lot of times we see uh, police officers get a little bit overzealous when mm. investigating cases and they get they they bite down on one suspect and they don't let up because they they um, feel under it's like pressure. tunnel vision. Right. Yeah. They get that tunnel vision. Now they're under pressure to uh, solve. And I can imagine back in um, like in 87 that this case was right. huge. And so they were absolutely under a lot of pressure to solve this case. And they jumped and the on, victim jumped was on a white one person. You know? yeah. They jumped on the one person that they could jump on and didn't just did not let up from that. And um, we still see that a lot on cases. Um, right. I can remember a case I had um, some years ago where a person was um, on, all this stuff was on video and um the police were like this is the person that did this you know we got the fingerprints blah blah all this stuff we get ready to go to trial a year later and the prosecutor combed through this case with a fine tooth comb and she said this is not that person and you know this right. person's been in jail for a year on this case and mm. this is not the person and we had to release that person we had to dismiss the case against them they and you know what so, so quick to jump on you know and don't look at all the evidence. Don't look at everything that they need to look at. They just so right. to, you know, try to get those numbers up, those solid numbers up. And you know what? I, I thank you for your bravery because the thing about it is I don't have an issue with prosecutors. A lot of people in my line of work, of reformers, of justice work, you know, they tend to kind of focus in on, on the prosecutors and, and the prosecutors do hold mm -hmm. a lot of weight when it comes yeah. to the, the judicial process. But for me, we need bold prosecutors like Kim Fox and Larry Krasner and Wesley Bell and those who are bold enough to go after 
justice mm-hmm. versus a conviction. We also need offices, DA offices who reward justice right. versus uh, rewarding convictions. Right. So that's what I talk about when we talk about reimagining justice, both sides coming together, understanding the needs of people and attaining justice right. and not if the victim is white and the offender is black. It's just so important that we understand those things because I, I I do understand that some people when you talk about um, victims' families and the victim impact in regards to cases like this they are very dire but right. I think that's what fuels me even more we want to get to justice yes. in that case you know we don't want to just pick a guy and find a guy uh, we want to get to to the true true offender so we can stop this cycle right. of uh, of violence. Right. I am um, speaking of the cycle of violence. Um, oh, my goodness. 300 and something homicides last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, read an article um, that said that Memphis is on track for 475 this year. I doubt that. Oh, wow. Seriously, I would hope not. Yeah. Um, but we are already, um, you know, at more homicides than have been days in this year. Um, right. And nobody seems to be alarmed about that. Mm. And um, it seems very frustrating because it's like, you know, the mayor has his, the mayor has his, you know, whatever they call it, plan to uh, uh, violence (laughs) or stop the violence plan. I don't know what it's called. I forgot it just now. Right. It's a new name. (laughs) (laughs) And then my office has all these, you know, little programs that they're starting and all this stuff. But, um, you know, and things they've done in the past and it gets frustrating because it's like this stuff going to work for like five minutes and then, Mm. you know, what's going to happen after that? Implement a program, you know, maybe it goes well for a couple of weeks. Maybe the people that you put in the program are successful for a couple of weeks and all that. This is um, reactive stuff that we're doing. What are we doing to be more proactive to prevent uh, what's going on in our city? Right, 130 something people lost their lives last year. Mm. Um, you know, 20 something of them children, and the homicide rate is abysmal. And you know, nobody seems nobody's raising alarms about that. Nobody's raising alarms about that. What can right. we do more um, as uh, city leaders, as stakeholders, and communities, um, as you know, just regular people? to to combat this. Right, so, you know, Memphis, I think a couple of years ago, we received the award in some business journal for the most philanthropic city um, in the United States. Uh, Memphis has so many nonprofits and charities. And for me, my understanding of a charity, especially when I was in grad school doing some program analysis, is for you to eventually work yourself out of a job. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our charities and uh, philanthropists need to be real honest about where they choose to put their funds um, and not just giving to entities that give kids bikes every Christmas or give uh, turkey baskets every Thanksgiving, but really pouring into education for folks to have livable wages, 
for folks to have um, mental health access, yes. uh, things like that uh, for, for literacy rates to increase. So students do have opportunities but for affordable housing. You know, these are just basic, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right? These are just basic things. And I know, you know, when I started the Court Watch program uh, with Just City, I saw a lot of crimes of, of, pro of, of, um, poverty. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of people, it was theft of property, theft of this, theft of that, theft of that. It was just always kind of like situations where people didn't have, it was even a mom, you know, and I, I'm sure you've seen cases like this, mom stealing out of Walmart, yeah. uh, Pampers and things like that. Me. So things like yeah. yeah. So when I think about things like that, I have to put that back on the folks who are choosing to invest yes. in different charities, um, that are not doing anything. Right, be exactly. they're investing in these charities. <laughs> what are the charities doing? Yeah, okay. and they're just having these elaborate Christmas dinners and you know things like that. And and the folks are really not. Gwendolyn Brooks has a poem that talks about the ladies of the the charity leagues, and it really just talks about how you know these uh, privileged white women they go out like once a year to help uh, disenfranchised communities, and they go back into their mansions. And that's kind of how I view. Um, a lot of the charities in, in Memphis because um, they're not working themselves out of a job. They're getting bigger. They're getting mm -hmm. DHS grants and all this one is being served. So when you talk about that number and the areas on where these charities are, what's being done? You exactly. know, so I we always say, yeah. I always said there's money in crime. So as long as you say um, and poverty. <laughs> right, crime and poverty. So as long as you say, oh, I'm doing this for, you know, maybe I'll throw a little grant to this um, neighborhood for, you know, for this community for whatever, you know, for kids, right. activities, for something at the community center, for whatever. Um, and you, you're not see, you're still not seeing any real change. You're not seeing any um, um, anything that's effective, anything that actually helps. But these charities keep getting money, keep getting money, keep getting money. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, what's the benefit for them to actually help solve crimes, help prevent crimes, help, uh, right. there's no benefit for them to do it because as long as they say they, they're just working on it, um, you know, <laughs> they, they're going to get money for it, you know, they're going to get the big grants for it. You know, yeah. so yeah, it's, yeah, it's people, you know, it's a lot of people in Memphis that live below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you have people who can't stay in the house because of COVID, because they're eager to, to kind of show you that I have money or working or show you that I have money by going out every weekend because I'm not able to really live like how I want to live. So I'm going to give the illusion that yeah. I'm living <laughs> a certain way um, just so I can feel like I'm keeping up with everyone right. so you know that's the issues of poverty but also when we talk about like domestic situations we just need more education on how to have great interpersonal relationships with people yeah. um more families need therapy um a lot of times people talk about black on black crime but it's also white on white crime it's also latinos on latino oh crime God. it's also I'm asian so on asian tired crime. of hearing yeah black <laughs> crime especially from black people because i mean everybody know it's like common sense should tell you if i live in a black neighborhood and a black person commits a crime against i mean it's opportunity 
That's all yeah. it is, is opportunity. It's not necessary that they, um, white people, okay, I'm just gonna say it, have hyped up this black on black right. crime thing so much that we have believed it all these years that, right. um, you know, we contribute so much to crime. Um, they never say anything about the crimes that white people commit commit against each other. Or right. like Asian on Asian crime or the Latino. Uh, we have a large Latino um, population here. Is what that type of I mean, it's all type, it's crime. And in a right. city with almost 700,000 people, you can mm -hmm. expect that. You know, right. I, I'm not got to live in uh, the Raleigh Bartlett area. I'm not going to travel all the way to uh, South Memphis <laughs> to commit a crime or drive all right. the way to Collierville to commit a crime. People often yeah. offend where they live and, and with people who have close interpersonal relationships right. with them. So, yeah, so it's it's an issue of poverty, but it's also an issue of like how to have great interpersonal relationships and therapy and and you know I'm kind of on this peace journey and how to disconnect and create boundaries with people so yeah it's just so many different routes and, and so many different solutions to that particular crime issue in Memphis yeah I um it's been so embedded and we've been so indoctrinated with that forever and um I just don't see how um we're going to be able to turn that narrative around mm. and change mindsets um, with people because I mean we need more opportunity um Dr. Burnett we we need more opportunity for folks yeah. um and I I feel like it's also a mentality people say oh well Memphis has this grit and grime mentality it's going to take a while to turn that around but I also know you know that a coding lab in the middle of North Memphis or South Memphis, like what could, that would be amazing. Like right. if we had great minds and great thinkers to partner with Apple or Google to bring a coding facility in those types of areas, like that would give uh, students and young people something to do. So uh, we just need to think outside of the box when it comes to addressing these issues and not just be stuck up on the status quo. Absolutely. Um... <laughs> I want to go with that. Um, I I am a in your group, uh, decarcerate Memphis, right? And um, that was created after the Operation Legend. They love saying Operation stuff. Operation, right? Federal, <laughs> these federal uh, things, uh, but Operation Legends uh, came to mm -hmm. Memphis, and um, I guess essentially, I mean, what are they supposed to be here for? Yeah, Decarcerate Memphis was started by a group of activists um, and organizers who were very uh, disturbed and annoyed and wanted to resist uh, federal policing initiatives. Um, we believe, and, and those a part of the group believe that the initiative just was the same same game under a new name. When you talk right. about things like the war on drugs and you know the 1994 crime bill, like things like that, we just believe that on a federal level uh, deploying uh, federal officers into local communities and not just equipping those communities with the resources they need is very detri detrimental yeah. to black and poor people. Um, and that's yeah, something that's that all, the that's data- That's the only place they're gonna be. Yeah, the data Those has been proven time and time again that programs like that don't work and often politicians um, that get behind these types of bills and initiatives <laughs> wink wink they have to apologize later if they run for president exactly 
you know moment of silence so uh, that's what that group believes and and you know i am no longer affiliated but i definitely you know hope that that group continues even under this new administration to to keep a watchful eye on initiatives that may pop up under a different name in memphis okay well wonderful um and we pretty much covered uh, quite a bit in this short amount of time. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about, you are leaving us, ma'am. We talked about this earlier and going to Atlanta. I am. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about your future endeavors and what you um, want to see, I guess, for the future of criminal justice reform. So I really feel like Mother Ida, and when I say Mother Ida, Ida B. Wells is mm -hmm. pushing me out of the city as much as I would love to stay. I have to almost kind of follow in her uh, footsteps in regards to the abolitionist movement that she had of lynching. And I share that same abolitionist movement when it comes to capital punishment. Uh, not that I don't believe that families are, are gravely affected by violence, but I believe that the system itself of capital punishment falls on a black and poor people. And that system is not a system that we should put in place. And uh, we shouldn't determine that. A state shouldn't determine uh, life or death. So Mother Ida is pushing me and she's been pushing me and putting me on a lot of national virtual stages because I've been very safe. You know, I've been social distancing and wearing my mask and things uh -huh. like that <laughs> and not traveling like everybody else. But on a lot of uh, virtual stages where uh, I've gained the attention nationally of folks saying, hey, we want to be able to use what you're doing, use your voice, use your platform to uh, catapult the work and progress the work nationally uh, and not just in Tennessee. So that's the calling that I receive. I am a national uh, policy strategist at the Southern Center for Human Rights, who for in Atlanta um, and really in Alabama, they've done a lot of work for 40 years oh, wow. has uh, worked and dedicated uh, the lawyers there, the investigators there, the policy folks there have uh, dedicated their work to how to address uh, the issue of capital punishment when it comes to Black folks and poor folks. And uh, what does smart justice look like? What does justice reimagined look like? We always say that policing reimagined, justice reimagined. Like, what does that look like? Well, I just believe that it looks like um, addressing uh, implicit and explicit biases. I believe that it also looks like um, discovering ways of uh, holding folks accountable that are not necessarily al always punitive in, me uh, in, in measures or also rooted in white supremacy. Oh, yeah. You know, that's something that uh, President uh, Joe Biden talked about in his inaugural speech. He talked about uh, defeating or rising up against white supremacy. And that was a great start to name it. But we also need to enact policies against it because Real if you policies, not just right. rhetoric, because right, not just by name, not just, you policy. know, they just it's just talk. Mm -hmm. No. Right, not just like a, you know, a pantomime of a policy is what I call it, mm -hmm. but definitely uh, real policies that will stick and have, have roots. So that's something that we need to talk about because if we thumb through 
some of these policies and laws that are in some of these, not just small cities, mm -hmm. larger cities mm -hmm. like Shelby or counties like Shelby County, you would be floored at how it's still rooted in racism. Yeah. So that's something that each county has to uh, really reconcile with and, and understand. And we, we need more organizers that are uh, knowledgeable about policies. So that's what I'm doing in uh, Atlanta, being able to help specific states understand how to talk to legislators and being bold enough to call out things like yeah. white supremacy and implicit bias. And, and the time is now. For such a time as this is now. Is. Um, we have just we have been embroiled um, for almost a year now in um, you know um, the word looking for protests, um, right. social justice, racial justice, everything is it and the the climate, this climate of just these folks really rising up out of their their little trailers to, uh, you know, just assault on the Capitol, um, all this stuff that's going on. We were attacked. We were yeah. attacked. That's what it was. It was and, an attack on yeah, our government. Absolutely attacked. And, and, and I never thought that I would live to see something like this. It's like we going, we back in the 60s again. And um, even earlier than that, <laughs> even earlier than that, and it's it's crazy, it's ridiculous, it's it's in and very dangerous as well. Um, I don't know, I don't know what this this. Yeah, uh, but I I do. I'm one of those folks that as long as it's breath in my body, <laughs> that's my <laughs> my Baptist uh, upbringing coming out of me. Um, I am definitely hopeful that a lot of the leaders that we are now electing, you know, I'm, I'm just excited that Georgia turned blue and uh, it will be less of a fight that I thought it would be right. um, going into Georgia. And that's really thanks to all of the organizers and, and the folks that really knocked on doors and, and did some grassroots um, organizing to get people out to vote. So we need to hold the people accountable who we elected, call them out when they are no longer representing our ideals. And uh, yeah, I just I just have hope that even if we can move it just a little, little niche, just a little nodule, then we've done our due diligence. Right. Um, I'm sorry, I'm having a technical issue right now. Getting oh, go ahead. Um, plug my laptop up before it um, shuts this whole thing down and I'm going to be messed up. Oh no. I'm sorry. That happens to me all the time. Like I never look at my battery life. I don't either. <laughs> Normally um, I would have already had this uh, fixed up. But I hope folks have enjoyed like everything we've talked about. We've talked about a lot of different issues. Um, charge it to my head and not my heart. Oh, no, 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 no. You're fine. You're completely fine. I am. Um, I think we pretty much covered everything that I wanted to uh, talk about. Um, I don't know. What else? Do we have anything else to discuss? I'm sorry. I'm back. You guys can just 
you know, if you are looking for what I'm doing in Atlanta nationally or even things that I'm doing locally, you can find me at Joya Bay, J-O-I-A-B-A-E, Wells, W-E-L-L-S. That's Twitter. Um, that's my Twitter account. And then my Instagram is at underscore Justice Bay underscore on Instagram. So definitely trying to grow those two audiences so people can stay plugged in to some of the things that I'm doing because I don't want to lose touch and I definitely don't want to lose community that I've already built. Give me your um, Instagram one more time. Instagram is at underscore Justice Bay underscore. You tried to act surprised when I called you Justice Bay. <laughs> I know because like, that's my little alter ego. So some people like online, like that's my online <laughs> alter ego. But you just know me as Joya. <laughs> right. Well, I am, um, thank you so much. I'm honored that you um, were able because you everywhere, ma'am. You all <laughs> over the place. You virtual, you doing Zooms here. God is good. There. You doing it, honey. So I'm glad that you were able to uh, give me a little bit of time today so we could discuss these things. Um, we were not live today, but I'll be posting this um, very soon once okay. I put an intro and an outro on it. But um, I'm, thank I'm you excited. So you know, I'm I am excited. For I have like uh, um, three episodes that I need to pull together and get ready to launch like in next week. And well, it's needed. Um, it's needed. And I'm glad you just went ahead and just did it for this year. And I hope you just continue with this content because it's needed. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. And I will let you go on that note because uh, you probably got another Zoom that you jump on. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joya. Enjoy your day. No problem. I'll Bye. talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>